Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to War Room. I'm Jackie Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and Editor-in-Chief of War Room. I'm here in the virtual studio today with Sarah Petrin, who is an expert in humanitarian initiatives with a career's worth of experience in more than 20 countries all over the world. She is an author, advisor, and speaker, uh, and according to her website, she is a girl from Maine who has just been trying to fix broken people and places since she was 15 years old. And I've asked her to join me today to talk about a recently published book, Bring Rain. Sarah, welcome to War Room. Thank you so much, Jackie. I'm delighted to be with you today. All right. So I must say I'm a little bit intrigued by this background or the the bio that's on your on your website. So I'd like for you uh, just to introduce yourself to our listeners, talk a little bit about you know who you are, where you come from, and what your purpose was in writing this book. Thanks so much. Uh, as you indicated in my bio, I have been working on humanitarian protection for more than 20 years, which is caught up in the question of how do we keep people safe from harm? And that question has been the organizing principle behind my humanitarian career. I studied international relations as an undergraduate and have a master's degree in refugee studies from Oxford University. And I worked in the field overseas uh, doing cross-border operations with the United Nations and international NGOs in many uh, very interesting and difficult places, including the Kenya-Somalia border, the Thailand-Myanmar border, the Afghan-Pakistan border, and in the eastern territories of the Ukraine also. But my background for this book really comes from the title, uh, which is Bring Rain. And I was born in a small African village in Kenya in East Africa called Mumias. And my parents were doing mission work. My mom was a nurse and my dad was a teacher. And I was born in the year of drought. And I lived in this very remote village. And so when I was born, uh, my mom had an audience uh, the village chief brought his entire family to the mission hospital where I was born. And when they brought me back to the village, all the elders held a rain dance to welcome me back and prayed that I would end the drought and the dry season and I would bring them rain. And I was only one day old, so I didn't have those miraculous powers to end the drought. But uh, their hope for my life really served as an inspiration for my humanitarian career, and that's where the title of the book comes from. It's so interesting how our like origin stories um, can sometimes affect 
in some ways, maybe the trajectory of entire, entire lives and choices. Um, so you were, you know, you said you were one day old and didn't have the power to, to bring rain. Uh, what were some of the formative experiences, um, from your childhood or, or young adulthood and the, then the, the choices you made about entering, uh, the humanitarian field? Yeah, I was so caught up in the story of my birth and, I, I grew up in Maine, uh, which is where my mother comes from. And when I was 15 years old, I raised money to help build a school back in the region where I was born. And at the time, the year was 1992. And I was in Kenya building the school at the same time that uh, Somalia was having a lot of challenges with clan warfare. And when I was in Kenya... Uh, one day we woke up to build the foundation of the school and all of a sudden hundreds of refugees from Somalia had come and squatted on the land. And this is what made me fascinated, not only with the United Nations, which came to try to count and assist the refugees, but also with the role of the security sector, because the Kenyan police also were trying to round up the refugees and uh, get them to leave the land, which was private property. And unfortunately, they were beating them into these large dump trucks and taking them north to Dadaab refugee camp. And here I was 15 years old, and I woke up thinking that I was continuing to build this school. And all of a sudden, I was in the middle of a major uh, refugee emergency. And it forever changed the trajectory of my career and made me want to help refugees and um, fill those gaps that I was seeing in the way that people were treated so inhumanely. I think one of the things that strikes me as, as I was reading part of the part of the book um, to prep for this is your idea that at the, at the center of, of so much of our life is this idea of shared humanity. Um, and I'd like for you to maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about what you what your conception of this is and what you mean by this uh, idea that we are fundamentally linked linked together. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, as a humanitarian, I have it ingrained in me the core humanitarian principles which come from the Red Cross movement. And uh, one of those principles is the principle of humanity. And another principle that isn't often used is universality. And a lot of that is about recognizing our common humanity and not uh, discriminating against people who are different than us. Um, particularly when you think about refugees, a person is a refugee because they're persecuted based on uh, their nationality, their race, uh, their social uh, group their religion, their political opinion. And we see also that uh, oftentimes these divisive uh, social issues about gender and sexuality um, and politics really um, turn people into this perceived notion of being the enemy of someone else. And humanity is such an important principle that if we just look at every person as being worthy of respect of human rights and dignity uh, just because they are human beings, I think we would have a less divisive and a less violent uh, environment. And of course, 
um, in order to achieve this respect for humanity, we also um, need to build a more just and equal world for those who are marginalized because of uh, bias and discrimination. So as I listen, as I listen to that um, sort of philosophy and, and explanation, it, it strikes me that one of the challenges is taking that from abstract principle or abstract concept and thinking about it in concrete terms and concrete ways. So I'm wondering if you might share with us, um, you know, an illustrative experience or a case or a, a moment um, that you think really demonstrates this idea and this principle uh, and this core of humanity and universality that you're talking about. Yeah, I think that um, it's really important when you encounter another human being and you meet someone that you don't assume things about their background uh, based on how they look or how you meet them. And I'll share a simple story that that isn't in my book, but that I wrote about on a blog a while back ago. I was sitting in a restaurant in North Carolina and my server was it clearly uh, a young man uh, from somewhere in Africa, and I had asked him about his name, and he told me uh, that his name was Charles. And I said, no, I want to know your real name, because I knew that he had to have an African name, and um, he told me that his real name meant that he was born on a Tuesday, and um, our conversation just led him to remember his native language. And he began to sing me a song about um, being born on a Tuesday. And all of his colleagues in the restaurant had no idea that he had another name, uh, didn't really know that he was from uh, Ghana. And everyone came around the table and listened to him sing. And it was a moment where we just realized that he had kind of been hiding his true self um, because he was afraid of um, expressing his difference among his fellow American colleagues. And it's a small moment like that where you can share a story, you can share a song, you can learn someone's language and just look beyond the, the face of a person and get to know the human side of their story. And it can create a sense of uh, shared appreciation that you might not have had uh, for the person otherwise. So that's a, a very simple human encounter. Um, but I think we can all have encounters like this every day in our lives if we open ourselves up to talking to one another and learning each other's stories. I think that's a, a really nice um, il illustration of, of this idea that story and identity are like, deeply connected and that we can be connected with each other. I'm, I'm wondering right now if I think about um, our listeners on a podcast, um, that the, the name of the podcast is A Better Peace, right? That's one of the things that we are, I think, striving for when we think about the national security and the international security community. Um, but it's part of a podcast called The War Room, right? Yes. And so we have this contrast between um, the sort of realm of war and violence and conflict and this uh, ideal of peace building and peacemaking uh, in a future that is different from the one that we live in now. 
And I'm wondering um, what you might what you might say about that tension, especially for uh, listeners who work in you know in defense and security, where violence and the application of of force is is part and parcel to what they do. And yet we know that that people in military communities and elsewhere are traveling all over, interacting with uh, with other people all over all over the world. It strikes me as an interesting maybe juxtaposition. Yeah, thank you. Another example that I thought about that's also uh, unfortunately not in the book comes from doing uh, military training on humanitarian operations, specifically with NATO. I was involved in developing a serious game on civil military interaction in conflict zones, and we were working to integrate uh, gender analysis into this uh, highly technological uh, game where uh, military officers were going to have to play an avatar that was a humanitarian worker and humanitarian workers were going to play a military avatar and go through the different type of uh, planning process and operational protocols and kind of see both sides of an operation. And uh all the guys I was working with said, you know, we don't we don't know how to do this gender analysis um, and how to integrate this into the game. Uh, you know, we don't deal with women in operations. We just, you know, take out bad guys. And so we took a break and we went to lunch. And over lunch, a French officer said, well, you know, there was that one time when I was in a forward operating base in Afghanistan and it was a pretty isolated area. Uh, but one day a, a woman came up to us and she gave us her baby. And I said, what? He said, yeah, she, a woman, you know, in the, a local village came up to us and asked us to take her baby. And I said, so what did you do? And he said, we took the baby into the FOB, into the Ford operating base. And they tried to figure out how to feed the baby and how to... Uh, put a diaper on the baby. And I thought to myself, this is crazy because I can't think of a more unsafe place for a baby than a forward operating base. And why they took the child in um, when they're in the middle of an active uh, fighting area. And this is our common humanity, you know, that soldiers are human beings and, and someone gave them this small vulnerable child and they wanted to help it. And eventually they did have to give um, the child back to its mother. And then they tried to assist the mother, but doing a gender analysis or doing a protection of civilians analysis would have shown them the vulnerability of um the entire village or the entire society and maybe enabled them to identify other actors in the area that could have assisted the child or could have assisted the woman. Um, but I thought it was a very interesting example of a very human response and um, saying, you know, we don't understand this big gender analysis stuff, but, you know, we want to help and we want to care for other human beings. And so that, gave us a point of entry to do the larger analysis about what is going on uh, in the lives of uh, women and children, not only in Afghanistan, but in other areas of crisis. Mm -hmm. It's such an interesting, like micro 
versus macro like question about how people respond in in traumatic and crisis uh, like moments i'm thinking about all of the historical pictures that we have of right service members interacting with animals and children and the like the way we respond to vulnerable um people and creatures sort of who are who are around us and that that juxtaposition between the the violence of combat and the the vulnerability of of people and 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 creatures that we see around us i think is is something that a lot of people are struck by uh, and that that we have to in some ways work to make sense of and i think some of the things you're talking about here um, you know can help us help us make sense of those um moments and and big juxtapositions as as well. Exactly. And I think we have the tools in place to help soldiers understand um, how their seemingly individual experience and their stories are related to this larger macro analysis of the dynamic of conflict and how it affects different people in the population. And even Um, A big part of my role has been to educate the military about the humanitarian community so that they understand the resources that are available, um, that they can refer special cases or specific problems uh, to civilian actors who can uh, assist the population uh, in ways that they really don't need to because there are other people there um, in the area of operations to do that. As I sit here in my, I'm, I'm in an apartment in DC in a, we're recording this in August of 2021. And I look around and there's an awful lot of mess in the world around us, right? We're in the second year of a global pandemic, um, right? Variants and vaccines are, are the talk of the day. Climate change seems to be having demonstrable effects all over the globe. There are wars worldwide that continue. There's real political division, um, right? There's challenges related to immigration and refugees and and internally displaced persons. There's persecution in all sorts of um, ways based on religion and race and gender and sexuality. And I, I imagine you see the same things that I do, right? This world is, is a, is a sort of messy, messy place. Um, And so I'm wondering how, you envision the the principles and the ideas that you talk about in your book and your sort of call to activism as well um, to make sense of the world that we live in and then to, you know, to act in, in responsible ways in that world. That's a big question, Jackie. And I'm, I'm glad you asked it because really I wrote bring rain uh, to help people understand the practical things that they can do in their everyday lives to get involved and to address these seemingly intractable conflicts and big picture problems um, in small steps and bite-sized ways. And I think if there is a good news story out of all the challenges we see is that particularly for us as an American audience, uh, I think the pandemic has been particularly humbling. And I also think that natural disasters and uh, climate change is also a a point at which we realize that the United States is not immune to crisis. And we have to 
recognize that there are things that we need to do domestically to make our society more resilient and uh, more prepared. And this is something that is not just uh, for security sector actors or for the military. It's even beyond the whole of government. You need a whole of society, meaning all people everywhere to have better preparedness and better response to understand what's going on. And so to me, I see this as an opportunity for us to recognize that we need to make our own communities stronger and make our country uh, better prepared. And one of the chapters in my book talks about Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana, which was a real turning point for me in my own career because I had come back from working in Afghanistan and Pakistan and managing these huge uh, refugee projects with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And I uh, was doing advocacy with a uh, a domestic nonprofit. And when the levees broke in New Orleans and people were inundated by the water and there were so many displaced people, um, someone in the White House called my boss and asked to send me down to do an independent assessment of the needs of evacuees in Louisiana. And uh, with the help of some uh, military colleagues, I was able to access everywhere I needed to go. And I was just stunned at the lack of preparedness that we had uh, within America, the people passing out of dehydration, not having any water, and trying to get uh, water from uh, FEMA and from the National Guard was a nightmare. And it was very challenging. And, you know, we had the money and the resources for uh, private military contractors to provide security in these evacuee sites. But I would go to these evacuee sites and I had elderly people passing out on me from dehydration. And the only place we could go to for water were uh, churches and community groups. And it was uh, a very humbling experience for me to realize that within my own country that it was so difficult to coordinate a humane and timely response. And in Superstorm Sandy, we saw this also. I was in New York City and New Jersey after the storm, and the shelter arrangements for the population were insufficient for uh, the weather conditions. And um, yet we have all these plans, we have all these exercises, and over and over again, we miss the human element of what people need uh, when everything fails, when they don't have shelter, when they don't have water. And so I'm... I'm really motivated in my book to tell readers um, that even in the United States and our own communities, we have work to do. And there's so much you can do through volunteering and education to uh, train yourself on how to be a first responder in your community, that I think there's something that everyone can do uh, regardless of where you live. So Sarah, as you were talking, um, it strikes me that the complex relationships between individuals, communities, institutions, and infrastructure is, is one thing. Um, even if we were to imagine like perfectly working all of those, you know, working in concert, we still have places where individual, um, institutions, say the military 
are running up against, you know, local or state or municipal or federal rules and regulations and policies that don't always account for things. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what might be required um, at a human sort of leadership level to make some of, of this work happen? You know, one thing that I think is a common denominator between the situation I described earlier in Hurricane Katrina response in Louisiana and the situation we face with COVID uh, today is we see this competition between different levels of government and different levels of authority. So there was a lot of debate between municipal leaders, state leaders, and federal leaders about the right strategy and the nature of the response. And in my view, this prolonged human suffering, um, both for COVID and for the response to Hurricane Katrina. And one particular situation that I think of as a leadership dilemma that I describe in, in my book was when I realized that there were so many people without water who um, were passing out from dehydration, I went to the National Guard to try to see if they would release their water to me. And inside the command center, I could see thousands upon thousands of bottles of water stacked high from the floor to the ceiling. And when I asked whether or not uh, those particular cases of water could go right outside less than one mile away to where literally we were losing American lives who were dying from dehydration. Uh, the answer I got was no. Uh, we can't uh, release these supplies to you because there are internal supplies for our sustainment. And even though uh, that may have been true, that may have been the case, um, that's a type of situation in which uh, perhaps taking the decision up the chain of command uh, would have been uh, something that could have resulted in uh, truly saving lives. And certainly, in my view, if the military did not not have any more water, uh, they would have found a way to uh, quickly be resupplied, whereas we could not bring those lives back. Uh, that were at the convention center once people had passed out from dehydration, uh, a lot of people died. And so it's it's very difficult because um, you look at the news and you think, well, how how come there's no water there? And there actually was water there, but it just wasn't for the people. And so I think for individual leaders, you have to ask yourself, what can I do to be the person who's willing to coordinate and to cooperate and to go the extra mile and to maybe do something different or non-traditional um, in order to perhaps make a decision uh, that would improve the overall situation. Yeah, and you can imagine the complexities that people are people are facing, right? When they've got all of these competing uh, competing demands, and I think one of the things that you're work sort of asks us to, to really consider and think about is the way that shared humanity comes into that decision-making process and to, to think about uh, the, the lives of the people who are around us and affected by the, by the choices that we, that we make. 
Exactly. And I think even if something doesn't seem feasible, I think in, in today's type of crisis, we have to think of the art of what is possible, right? And that is part of what leadership is, is finding a new way of doing things. And certainly, I think that is something that we all need to think about. How can we do things differently, whether you're in government or the military or the private sector to try to meet the great needs we see in the world today. Thinking about the desirable and the possible and the tensions uh, and then making those hard decisions is certainly something that we ask our war college students to do uh, day to day as they're in the classroom. And then as they, as they leave us and go on to uh, positions of, of leadership throughout the, the services, their governments and, uh, and all over the world, really. Yeah. And I, I can think of also an example from uh a fellow student that I met at the war college who was involved in Hurricane uh, Maria response in Puerto Rico, uh, and they ran out of water for their sustainment for the base, and they actually had to break into a private aqueduct in order to pump out water for the base. And this was one situation where they didn't ask for permission, but they asked for forgiveness later and were able to uh, get the water they needed uh, for their own sustainment. So again, this takes leadership. Um, Sometimes you're in an impossible situation and you have to uh, be willing to take a risk to do something uh, unorthodox to uh, make things work. I feel like I have I've learned a lot today um, in just the the few minutes that we've had together. I've um, thought about the relationship between all sorts of things, uh, individual action and community strength and resilience, uh, institutions and infrastructure, uh, and all of the all of the things that uh, that bind us uh, bind us together in our experiences uh, through this through this world. So. As another episode of A Better Peace comes to a close, I'd like to thank you, uh, Sarah, for joining us uh, today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, and I'd like to thank our listeners as well for listening in. We'd like to invite you to send our uh, your comments on this episode or any others and send us suggestions uh, for future episodes as well. We're always interested in hearing from you. Uh, we hope you'll subscribe to A Better Peace. And when you've subscribed on the podcatcher of your choice, we hope that you'll also rate and review the program to tell other people about it. We look forward to having you join us again soon. And until next time, uh, this is Sarah Petran and Jackie Witt signing off for War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.